Okay, so this is our study group on Simon Dong's individuation in light of notions of form and information. We're going to be starting the conclusion today. We are on page 357 of the translation. So last time we, we read the last bit of the part on collective individuation, and we saw this notion of the subject as the, the entity that includes both the individual and the remaining pre-individual milieu surrounding that individual. So we saw this notion of the subject and this distinction between the subject and the individual and this argument that Simon Dole makes that the incorporation of the of the or the formation of a collective has to do with the the subject rather than the individual. So it's only through those new individuations. So the, the process of forming a collective is a, a new individuation process that depends on the uh, pre-existing pre-individual that is associated with the individuals in the subject. Uh, so it, it's subjects that form a collective rather than individuals. And then we saw this um, theory of emotion, uh, which again, uh, Simon Do argues has to do with has to do with the subject rather than the individual. So emotion has to do with the relationship between the uh, the subject and the collective, uh, it's it's not something that is tied into the individual. Uh, so there's there's always an aspect by which the emotion leads into the collective. I don't need to go into too much detail about the last part because it was more or less a, a summary of what we'd already seen. Maybe we can just get right into the uh, the conclusion for today. Uh, I think we can probably finish the conclusion in two sessions, um, but we'll see how, how it goes. Okay, so I'll start reading. Conclusion. To conceive individuation as operation and as an operation of communication, thus as first operation, is to accept a certain number of ontological postulates. It is also to discover the foundation of a normativity, insofar as the individual is not the only reality, being's unique model, but merely a phase. However, it is more than a part of a whole because it is the seed of a totality. The entrance into the collective must be conceived as a supplementary individuation that calls for a charge of the pre-individual nature borne by living beings. Indeed, nothing makes it possible to assert that the whole reality of living beings is incorporated into their constituted individuality. The being can be considered as an ensemble formed by individual reality and pre-individual reality. Pre-individual reality can be considered as the reality that founds trans-individuality. Such a reality is not at all a form within which the individual would be like a matter, but a reality that extends the individual on both sides, like a world into which the individual is initially inserted by being on the same level as all the other beings that make up this world. The entrance into the collective is an amplification of the individual in the form of the collective of the being that would include a pre-individual reality as well as an individual reality. This supposes that the individuation of beings does not completely exhaust the potentials of organization and that there is only a single possible state of the completion of beings. Such a conception, therefore, depends on a postulate of discontinuity. Individuation does not effectuate itself according to the continuous, which would result in making it such that an individuation could be only total or null, since this mode of the appearance of the being qua unity cannot operate via fractions of unity, whereas a plurality joins together with another plurality. The discontinuous is normally conceived as a spatial or energetic discontinuous that only appears in exchanges or in, 
or in movements for the elementary particles of physics and chemistry. Here, the idea of the discontinuous becomes that of a discontinuity of phases linked to the hypothesis of the compatibility of the being successive phases. A being considered as individuated can in fact exist according to several phases present together, and in itself it can change phases of being. There is a plurality in the being that is not the plurality of parts. The plurality of parts would be below the level of the being's unity. But this plurality is a unity that is even above this unity, since it is that of the being as phase, in the relation of one phase of being to another phase of being. The being qua being is fully given in each of its phases, yet with a certain reserve of becoming. It could be said that the being has several forms and consequently several entelechies, not just one, as the doctrine extracted from a biological abstraction supposes. The relation of the being to its own parts or the consideration of the being's becoming, insofar as this becoming alters it, cannot provide the key to the rapport between the being's unity and plurality, no more than it can provide the key to the rapport between the individuated being and other beings. Being, whether individuated or not, has a spatial temporal uh, dimensionality, or in one instant and in one place, it harbors several phases of being. The being is not merely what it is insofar as it manifests, since this manifestation is just the entelechy of a single phase. While this phase actualizes, other latent and real phases exist, and these can even be actual as energetically present potential. And the being consists in them as well as in its phase through which it attains entelechy. The error of the hylomorphic schema mainly consists in that it merely authorizes a single entelechy for the individuated being, whereas the being must be conceived as having several phases. The being can have several successive phases that are not entelechies of the same phases and are consequently not iterations. The relation of the individuated being to other beings is inconceivable in a doctrine that substantializes the individuated being because it considers individuation as an absolute appearance of the being, a creation, or as continued formation based on elements that do not contain something that foresees the individuated being and that prepares it energetically. Ontological monism must be replaced with a pluralism of phases since the being incorporates, instead of a single form given in advance, successive informations that are a certain number of reciprocal structures and functions. The notion of form must be dissociated from the hylomorphic schema in order to be able to be applied to the polyphasic being. Consequently, this being cannot be considered from within the general schema of common genera and specific differences, which supposes the validity of the hylomorphic schema. Dissociated from the hylomorphic schema, the notion of form can become adequate to the polyphasic nature of being by structuring itself in a relational way following the direction of the Gestalt theorists. This relational significance of form is attained more fully from within the notion of information, provided that information be understood as the relational signification of a disparation, i.e. as well as a problem that cannot be resolved through amplification. Uh, I'll stop here um, in this multi-page paragraph, um, which we're coming back to, um, we haven't seen one of these in a little while. Um, but uh, so one point that I'll, I'll make um, um, at the, uh, for this whole conclusion um, is on, on translation about, um, so here in the translation, we have the dub being, um, uh, you could also translate l'être as being. Um, and uh, I think, at least in parts of this conclusion, being would be a better translation. Uh, he talks about being qua being, um, which seems to require um, uh, being as opposed to the being. Um, 
and and so the difference would just be that the being would meet would be equivalent to uh, the entity, um, whereas being is the being of an entity. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, I think being uh, makes better sense of uh, a lot of the passages in this conclusion. Uh, so whenever you see the being, you can read being instead, uh, if that helps to make sense of it. Um, but in terms of the uh, content of this bit that, that we just went through, uh, it's it's all relatively familiar um, from the introduction that we read many months ago. Uh, this idea of phases of being um, has, has come up a few times over the course of our reading. Uh, it, and so the the idea is is essentially that um, this pre-individual being has within it the potential to undergo this dephasing or this splitting operation, um, and um, uh, so this pre-individual being is more than unity. It, it's not uh, it's not something like an, an individual being, um, and uh, it splits into this. Uh, individual being and its surrounding milieu, uh, which remains unindividuated. Uh, and um, this type of splitting operation or this uh, dephasing of being is um, is sort of the, the fundamental uh, principle that allows for the genesis of individuated beings. Uh, right, and then so we have um, a comment here from Angus um, about um, this idea of an entelechy at each phase is interesting. Later, there is the idea that each phase has its own sense rather than, than there being a sense only of beginning and end. So I wonder if there's a correspondence between entelechy and sense here. Um, hmm. I'm not sure. Um, maybe we'll have to come back to that question when we get to that part about sense. Um, but uh, here, I think um, entelechy, um, the idea here is that um, there's there's no such thing. So entelechy is, is this Aristotelian notion um, of the fullest um, perfection or the, the fullest uh, reality of a being. Uh, so like the, um, the oak tree has its fullest reality, it's entelechy, when it's um, in the form of a mature oak tree, um, rather than when it's in the form of an acorn. Uh, and so you can say that the acorn um, uh, aims at um, or is directed towards the entelechy, which is the mature oak tree. Um, and, and so this is the this notion of entelechy. And Simon Don here is arguing against the idea that there is a, a single entelechy uh, for an entity. Um, instead, we have to think of there being entelechies uh, for each phase of being. Um, so there's an individual entelechy, and then there's also there would be a, a pre-individual entelechy as well. Uh, and, and so um, essentially, this is um, just denying that uh, the individual being is the the sort of central principle of being that that individuals are um, what makes up being and uh, allowing for the possibility that non-individuated so either pre-individuated or or the milieu associated with an individual being 
um, is, uh, has the status of being as well. Oh, where is uh, IntelliKey on which page? Uh, let's see, on 358, I believe. Yes. 350? 358. Okay, thank you. Oh. All right, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, so this notion of IntelliKey is um, sort of brought up here for the first time, I think, actually. Um, I don't think it's come up um, in the rest of the book, as far as I remember. Um, but it's used here more in a negative sense, I think. Um, it's, it's used um, in, in the sense of uh, denying, <clears throat> denying that there is such a thing as the entelechy of, of being as a whole, um, or one central um, phase of being that uh, the rest, the other phases of being would be um, oriented towards or aimed towards. I think this uh, <clears throat> the sentence at the end, um, the last sentence that you read, where he says that uh, information has to be understood as the relational signification of a disparation, i.e. a problem that can only be resolved through amplification. Is he saying that amplification is the, is, um, the same as signification of a disparation? Oh yeah, sorry. I I, uh, I just saw your your comment that it's different in your in the printed version. Um, sorry, let me just find that in the French and see what it says. Um, because uh, the the one in the uh, PDF is the opposite of of what you have in the the um, in the printed version. Oh, interesting. So it is opposite. Yeah. Um, yeah, it should be. Um, that cannot be resolved through amplification. Um, so yeah, what it says in the PDF is the correct translation. Um, so so yeah, so we have this uh, information as um, as a problem that cannot be resolved through amplification. Uh, I think we can understand that to mean that, um, like in the standard example of the visual perception, um, we we can only resolve the the problem of uh, the disparation of the two retinal images by inventing or discovering uh, the dimension of depth. Um, it's not just an amplifying operation. It's not just a, a, a sort of direct structuring operation. It's this invention slash discovery, um, which which has this um, element of novelty or, or creation about it. Um, and and so information in the in Simon Don's sense of the word always involves some sort of uh, discovery or invention uh, in the receiver of the information or in the the uh, the entity that is um, involved in that information process. Okay, so let's go on to the next bit. So someone else can pick up from such a doctrine supposes. Uh, I can read. Such a doctrine supposes that there is communication only within an individuated reality, and that information is one of the aspects of the reciprocity of the individu individuated being relative to itself. The relation of the being with respect to itself is infinitely richer than identity. 
identity and impoverished relation is the only relation of the being to itself that can be conceived according to a doctrine that considers the being as having a single phase. In the theory of polyphasic being, identity is replaced with internal resonance, which in certain cases becomes signification and permits an amplifying activity. Such a doctrine supposes that the order of realities is grasped as transductive and not as class classificatory. Uh, the grand divisions of the real marked by genera and hylomorphic theory become phases, which are never totally simultaneous in actualization, but nevertheless exist either as functional and structural actuality or as potentials. The potential becomes a phase of the actually existing real instead of becoming pure virtuality. By contrast, what was considered as the pure indetermination of matter in the hylomorphic theory of the individuated being becomes an ordered transductive series, or the incompatibility of several transductive series. Transductive order is an order according to which a qualitative or intensive staggered spectrum spreads out on both sides based on a center in which the qualitative or intensive being culminates. Such is the series of colors which one should not attempt to discern from its extreme, imprecise, and outstretched limits of infrared and violet, but which, should, but which one should grasp in its center, the yellow-green in which organic sensibility culminates. For the human species, yellow-green is the center starting from which chromatic quality spreads, uh, splits toward red and violet, and toward violet. There are two tendencies in the series of colors, tendencies starting from the center toward the extremes, tendencies already contained in the center qua center of the series. The series of colors must first be grasped in its real middle, milia, which is variable for each species. This also applies for tonal qualities and thermal qualities. For the individuated being, there is neither matter, which is pure indetermination, nor an infinite diversity of the sensible, but the fundamental bipolarity of transductive series ordered according to an axis. Instead of a relation between two terms, the transductive series constitutes as a single central term uh, that splits into two opposite directions starting from itself, distancing from itself into complementary qualities. Such a representation of the being requires a conceptual reform that can only be obtained based on a revision of the basic schemata. The usage of a certain number of paradigms is necessary for replacing the hylomorphic schema, which is directly imposed by culture. However, the choice of the domain that can provide the first notional paradigms cannot be arbitrary. In order for a schema to be utilized Effectively, as a paradigm, there must be an operative and functional analogy between the original domain and the domain of application for the paradigm to be possible. The hylomorphic schema is a paradigm extracted from the technical operation of form-taking and then utilized to think the living individual grasped through its ontogenesis. On the contrary, we have attempted to extract a paradigm from the physical sciences by thinking that it can be transposed into the domain of the living individual. The study of this physical domain is meant not only to form notions, but to serve basically as the study of a first domain within which an operation of individuation can exist. Since we suppose that there are very various degrees of individu individuation, we have utilized the physical paradigm without reducing the vital to the physical. 
because the transposition of this schema is accompanied by a composition of the physical itself. We do not mean to say that physical individuation is what produces vital individuation. We simply mean to say that reality has not clarified and developed all the possible steps of the operation in the physical system of individuation, and that a vital individuation still remains available within the physically individuated real. The individuated physical being can be invested in a further vital individuation without its physical individuation dissolving. Perhaps physical individuation is the condition of vital individuation without ever being its cause, since the vital intervenes as an amplifying deceleration of physical individuation. Physical individuation is the resolution of a first problem underway, and vital individuation is inserted into it after the emergence of a new problematic. There is a pre-physical problematic and a pre-vital problematic. Physical individuation and vital individuation are modes of resolution, not absolute points of departure. According to this doctrine, individuation is the arrival of a moment of the being that is not first. Not only is it not first, but it brings with it a certain persistence of the pre-individual phase. Only the pre-individual phase can really be called monophasic. On the level of the individuated being, the being is necessarily already polyphasic. For the pre-individual past survives parallel to the existence of the individuated being and remains a seed for new amplifying operations. Individuation intervenes in the being as the correlative birth of the distinct phases based on that which did not include them, insofar as what did not include them is pure omnipresent potential. Right. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I want to sort of call people's attention to footnote four um, uh, in, in that part there, which again is uh, unfortunately put as an end note in this edition. Uh, so yeah, thanks, Liz Mason. Um, so I'll just read that out for people listening. Uh, so end note four reads, physical individuation is considered here as an individuation that jumps the gun, i.e. that does not sufficiently remain in suspense at its origin. Vital individuation would be like a dilation of the inchoate stage that makes possible an organization, a deepening of the extreme beginning. Uh, so the, we've seen this, um, this idea before that uh, vital individuation is a kind of neoteny um, with respect to physical individuation. So it, it's, um, it's like um, a sort of slowed down version of physical individuation, where, whereas physical individuation re results in an individual um, that is, is just individuated and um, sort of static. Um, Vital individuation is a, a slower version uh, that um, doesn't end up with a static individual. Uh, it, it has a, a sort of ongoing process of individuation throughout the lifespan of that. Um, and the rest of the uh, development here in the, that passage that we just read, um, I think, uh, again, is, is Pretty familiar stuff from the introduction and um, other passages throughout the book. So we have criticism of the hylomorphic schema here, um, and what comes with the hylomorphic schema is the classification into species and genera, uh, which we've again seen criticized multiple times throughout this book. Um, and so Simon Doe instead 
uh, argues that to replace this schema, we need to use a, a paradigm drawn from physics. Uh, so this physical individuation that we saw in the in the second chapter of the book um, uh, is this schema that we uh, extract from physics and use to understand vital individuation. Um, and uh, maybe it's also worth mentioning here that um, the so the, the the publication history of this book that I, I've I've talked about a couple times before. Um, so this conclusion was part of the um, of the book that was published separately of the first two parts of the thesis, right? So the part on physical individuation and vital individuation was published separately, and then only in 1989 was the uh, the part on uh, psychical and collective individuation published. Um, and, and so this conclusion uh, seems to be focusing on the, the, the parts on physical and vital individuation. Um, but um, there, are, there are just a few sort of hints about the collective. And then later on, towards the end of the conclusion, we get this um, idea of ethics that comes in. Um, but we'll, we'll see that when we come to it. Um, but yeah, so we're focusing on the relationship between physical and vital individuation. Uh, and so we're, we draw this paradigm from physical individuation and apply it to the study of vital individuation. Uh, but we're not doing um, a, a sort of reduction of the vital to the physical. We're not saying that um, the physical is nothing other than, uh, sorry, the vital is nothing other than the physical. Uh, and we're also not asserting that there is something um, uh, distinct, there's a, a vital force or something that is not physical um, in the vital, in the, where instead um, the position here is that the vital and the physical are two different organizations of something that is neither vital nor physical. Um, so this pre-individual reality is not um, physical in the proper sense of the term, it's something pre-physical uh, is a term that he's going to use a little bit later in this uh, conclusion here. I think this idea that the pre-individual is the past of the individual, but it also is a seed for new individuation, so also kind of the future of the individual is interesting. And I, he, I think he talks about this uh, a little bit later on too, with the idea that the present is sort of what generates the past and the future in individuation. Yeah, we've seen throughout the book uh, a few different um, a few different developments of this idea of uh, time and individuation and the way that individuation corresponds to the present in time. Um, and so here, yeah, so we have the pre-individual is uh, the past in the sense that um, the individual is always a second moment or always something that comes after something pre-individual. Uh, and, but at the same time, the pre-individual is what allows for the possibility of further transformation or of of uh, development or or uh, becoming to happen, uh, and so because of that, there's this um, this relationship between the pre-individual and the future as well. So um, the future and the past sort of coincide in the pre-individual, uh, and then the present is the the moment of the individual, um, which always comes after 
a, a pre-individual and before another pre-individual. Okay, so let's go on to the next bit. Uh, I think we're at the individual, which is the results um, on the top of 361, if someone else would like to read. Okay. Um, uh, the individual, which is uh, the result, but also the milieu of individuation, must not be considered as singular. It is singular only with respect to other individuals, according to a very uh, superficial here and now. In fact, the individual is multiple insofar as it is uh, polyphasic. Multiple, uh, not as if it is uh, harbored within it a plurality of, uh, of more uh, localized and more momentary secondary individuals, but because it is a provisional solution, a phase of becoming that will lead to new operations. The unity of the individual is the central and middle phase of being, starting from which other phases arise and diverge into an unidimensional bipolarity. The being after individuation is not merely an individuated being. It is the being that entails individuation, the result of individuation, and the movement toward other operations based on a persistence of the initial pre-individual state. After individuation, the being has a past, and the pre-individual becomes a phase. The pre-individual is before every phase. It becomes the first phase only based on the individuation that splits the being and phase shifts it with itself to itself. Individuation is what uh, creates phases, for phases are nothing but this development of the being on both sides of itself. This double decentering, based on an initial consistency swarming with tensions and potentials that made it incompatible with, with itself. The pre-individual is being without phases, while the being after individuation is phasic being. Such a conception identifies or at the very least links individuation and the being's becoming. The individual is not considered identical to the being. The being is richer, more durable, and larger than the individual. The individual is the uh, individual of the being, individual taken from the being, not the pr primordial and elementary constituent of the being. It's a matter of the being, or rather a moment of the being. To propose a conception of individuation as the genesis of an individuated being that is not the first element of the being is to be forced to indicate the, be the meaning of the consequences that such a conception must have for the entirety of philosophical thought. Indeed, it seems that a certain conception of individuation is already contained within the notion of term, at least implicitly. Implicitly, one reflection intervening before any ontology wants to define the conditions of valid judgment, it resorts to a certain conception of judgment and correlat correlatively a certain conception of the content of knowledge of the object and the subject as the terms. However, any exercise of critical thought concerning the conditions of judgment and the conditions of knowledge it would be necessary to, to respond to this question. What is relation? What is implied in such a theory of knowledge is a certain conception of relation, and in particular, a certain conception of the individuality of terms as interior to relation. 
Nevertheless, nothing proves that knowledge is a relation, particularly a relation within which the terms pre-exist as individuated realities. If knowledge were contingent by the continuity of an individuation that envelops the subject and object within a structural and fu functional unity, what is said of the conditions of judgment would not be seen to concern the reality of knowledge, but a translation of the fact of knowledge as a relational schema between separately individuated uh, terms. A theory of individuation must develop into a theory of sense. It must take, uh, make psychology and logic coincide, the mutual separation of which indicates a double inadequacy to the studied object rather than a separation of points of view. The theory of individuation must be first with respect to the other critical and ontological deductive studies. It's precisely the theory of individuation that indicates the legitimacy for carving up being in order to make it enter into the propositional relation. Should I go on? Oh, we can stop here. Yeah, this is again uh, a multi-page paragraph, so it's kind of arbitrary where we stop. But uh, yeah, that's a good good enough place to to stop. Um, so um, yeah, this is continuing with <clears throat> with this idea of um, uh, the pre-individual and um, the relationship between the pre-individual and the phases of being. So the pre-individual being is a uh, a monophasic being or a being prior to phases and then um, in uh, individuation there is this polyphasic nature to the individual so um, the individual is always uh, one phase of being in correlation to the remaining uh, unindividuated milieu um, and um, Right, so there's so this again. He he brings up the relations between the relationship between the pre-individual being and the past. Uh, so the past is all, or the the pre-individual being is always um, sort of secondarily becomes the past. It uh, it's always as a result of the process of individuation that pre-individual being becomes a past, uh, and then. Uh, we can also maybe extending this notion, we can also think of how um, pre-individual being becomes sort of the source of the future. Um, so there's there's always um, um, there's always uh, the possibility for future transformation that is contained in the pre-individual. Uh, and then we have this bit about um, how the doctrine of individuation has to precede any um, any other um, philosophical doctrine, uh, and and he's he's made this point before. Uh, I think in the last week's reading, he he mentioned this. Um, but the idea of um, critical philosophy of of the Kantian philosophy, of course, is the idea is that we start out by doing a critique of the possibility of knowledge. Um, so we, the first um, the first field in philosophy, or the first uh, step in doing philosophy is to establish what we can know. Uh, but Simono argues that this um, is already presupposing the idea of subject and object as terms, uh, and then a relation as something 
external in which the terms can uh, can be related to each other. Uh, and, and so we're already presupposing a certain doctrine of individuation when we start from the critical question of what can we know. Uh, and so Simondo argues here that we instead have to start with the, the question of what is a relation and what is an individual. Uh, and, and that's the, the first type of question that we have to answer uh, because otherwise we're presupposing an answer to that question. Uh, and so um, the, the doctrine of the individual is prior to any critical question about knowledge uh, and prior to prior to an ontology in the sense of uh, determining what being is or uh, what being consists in, uh, we already have to uh, have a doctrine of what the individual is and, and uh, an idea of these phases of being before we can ask about what being is. Uh, and then there's a question here in the chat from Ion um, about um, this notion of metastability um, in relation to the future. Uh, yeah, so I think that's right. I think there is um, a certain metastability uh, implicit in uh, pre-individual being uh, that allows for something like a future to to appear on its basis. Um, so um, it's only because the possibility for future transformations is already built into pre-individual being that anything like an individual uh, and the becoming of that individual it, uh, are are possible. Um, so the future is sort of built into pre-individual being. Okay, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, let's see, where did we end? Um, I think we're at prior to any particular category uh, on 362, if someone else would like to read. Prior to any particular category, there is the category of being, which is a response to the problem of individuation. To know how being can be thought, one must know how it individuates. For this individuation is the support of the validity of any logical operation that must conform to it. Thought is a certain mode of secondary individuation that intervenes after the fundamental individuation that constitutes the subject. Thought is not necessarily capable of thinking being in its totality. It is second relative to the subject's condition of existence. This condition of the existence of the subject is not isolated and unique, for the subject is not an isolated term with the capacity to constitute itself. The substantialization of the subject as a term is a facility that thought grants itself to be able to witness the genesis and justification of itself. Thought seeks to be identified with the subject, i.e. to be identified with its conditions of existence so as not to lag behind itself. However, if the individual is itself relative as a phase of being, and if it is richer than unity as the depository of a pre-individual situation that it transmits in an amplifying activity, it cannot be grasped as the pure term of relation. The subject is substantialized by thought so that thought can coincide with the subject. Yet the subject's substantialization, which supposes that the subject can be taken as a, as a term of relation, gives it the status of an absolute term. Substance is like the relational term become absolute, having absorbed into it everything that was the being of relation. A similar logical reduction is tangible in all the cases within which the individual has been thought. For the individual is always, to a certain extent, thought as being a subject. A man is put in the place of what he thinks as an individual. The individual is what could have an interiority, a behavior, volitions, a responsibility, 
or at least a certain coherent identity that is on the same order as responsibility. There is an implicit subjectivity to every conception of the individual in contemporary doctrines, whether physical or biological. Nevertheless, in addition and prior to this projection of the same, of, uh, sorry, in addition and prior to this projection of the status of subjective individuality into the world, a reduction takes place within the subject that reduces it to being a substance, i.e. a term that has absorbed relation into it. Substance is an extreme case of relation, that of the inconsistency of relation. Under these conditions, it seems difficult to consider the notion of the individual as first with respect to every judgment and every critique. The individual being, which is the principle of the notion of substance, must be considered via individuation, the operation that founds it and brings it about. The study of ontogenesis must be anterior to logic and ontology. The theory of individuation must therefore be considered as a theory of the phases of being, a theory of the being's becoming insofar as the latter is essential. Uh, yeah, I can stop here again. Um, right, so we have a, a, a continuation of this uh, argument having to do with the priority of the theory of individuation over uh, other um, fields within philosophy. So um, when you start from uh, a critical philosophy, uh, uh, the critical question uh, in the sense of asking what we can know, then you are presupposing this um, notion of the subject. And at the same time, you're treating the subject as a term of a relation, as something that is already uh, constituted as an individual. And so you, you're um, reducing the subject to the individual uh, and, and the subject becomes uh, a substance. It's something that is self-subsisting and uh, has this inherent existence. Uh, and um, in, in the doctrine of individuation that we're um, studying here, that Simon Dong is setting out, we instead have to think of uh, the thought of the subject as always coming after, as always being a second, um, uh, second to something else, uh, and and so the the being of the subject is prior to the thought of the subject. We we saw this um, in the discussion of the Kogito argument, uh, maybe a month ago. Um, the this idea that thought uh, the Kogito presupposes the idea that thought and and the subject. Uh, coincide with each other so that you can actually witness the genesis of the subject in thought. Uh, but um, for Simon Dong, we, we actually uh, can't witness the true genesis of the subject in, in thought. We can only um, sort of perform a, a genesis in thought uh, of the subject. So we, we have to, um, the subject has to exist first before it can, um, before it can uh, think and perform the cogito uh, or any other type of argument. Uh, and so because, because, the, because the subject um, always pre-exists uh, the thought in which, um, uh, in which it's supposed to have its genesis, uh, when you, you sort of collapse the two terms together and produce the subject as a, a substance, as a, this self-subsistent entity. Uh, whereas in, in Simon Don's argument here, we have to um, 
we have to say that um, that the subject uh, uh, pre-exists thought, and that um, thought always comes after this pre-individual reality that uh, is not something that is graspable by thought in in the strict sense of the term. Yeah, so this this line here on uh, 362, where he says, thought is not necessarily capable of thinking being in its totality. It is second relative to the subject's condition of existence. Um, so we we only, um, thought only is capable of uh, uh, grasping what is individuated. Uh, and then um, when we want to have access to the pre-individual, we can only, uh, we can perform individuation in thought, um, but we we don't have a sort of direct access to the pre-individual. Do you think this is related to the idea of making psychology and logic coincide? Um, because if he says that the substantialization of the subject is, as he puts it, um, where man is put in the place of what he thinks as individual, then in, you know, it seems like thought can't think this, the relation between the individual and the pre-individual, which is in previous sections of the book was described as an affective relation and maybe is uh, what he's referring to by, you know, the object of study of psychology. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting um, suggestion. Yeah, so he, he says here that um, a theory of individuation must make psychology and logic coincide. Uh, and I think, um, yeah, so this idea of psychology and logic coinciding has to do with um, the idea that we, we don't want to have um, sort of like a subjective doctrine of thought and then an objective doctrine of thought. Um, so if you have psychology and, and logic as two um, separate disciplines, there would be uh, the subjective doctrine of thought, which which talks about um, the, the way that the subject uh, thinks uh, as a, you know, a series of mental states or, or something along those lines. Uh, and then the uh, logic as a, a second discipline would be the the objective doctrine of thought, um, which would treat um, not the actual states of any subject, but um, the uh, consequence relations between um, thoughts considered as uh, independent objective entities. Um, and so, making the two coincide, I think, I think what he what he means here is. Um, finding that middle between the two, which is not a, a mixture, um, but is the, the, re the, real, um, the real middle that we have to grasp in the same way that you understand the, the spectrum of light, not by um, starting from uh, red and violet and then sort of trying to combine the two, but um, you start from that yellow-green um, midpoint uh, and then you have uh, this transductive relation across the spectrum of light. Um, so I think maybe coincide is maybe a, a bit of a misleading term here, but he he um, he's talking about a doctrine of thought that would be neither objective nor subjective, uh, and it would um, it would grasp individuation as it's happening in that middle ground, as opposed to um, 
uh, sort of trying to um, mediate between this subjective doctrine of thought and this objective doctrine of thought. Okay, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, let's see, where did we end up? Um, according to the notion of substance, becoming indeed poorly fits together with being's essence. The notion of accident is not very satisfying and makes necessary delicate systematic edifices like those of Leibniz, which could hardly account for becoming qua becoming, because insofar as all the accidents are included in essence conceived as the complete individual notion, there is no longer a veritable becoming for a monadic substance, including the power of the future. The Spinozist edifice is not much more satisfying relative to becoming, which is excluded more so than integrated since the individual is denied as a separate being. In a theory of the phases of being, Becoming is something other than an alteration or a succession of states comparable to a serial development. Indeed, becoming is a perpetuated and renewed, uh, renewed resolution, an amplifying, incorporating resolution that proceeds via crises, such that it senses in each of its phases, not as its origin or its end alone. To explain becoming as a series instead of positing it as transduction is to want to make it emerge from its extreme terms, which are the most impoverished and least stable. An individual life is neither the determined unfolding of what it has been at its origin, nor the preparation of a voyage toward a final end. It is also not a tension between a birth and a death, between an alpha and an omega that would be its true terms. The being must also be grasped temporally in its center, in its present at the moment in which it is, and not reconstituted based on the abstraction of its two parts. The substantialization of the extremities of the temporal series disrupts the being's central consistency. Becoming is being as present insofar as it actually phase shifts into past and future, thus finding its sense in this bipolar phase shifting. It is not the passage from one moment to the other as one would pass from yellow to green. Becoming is transduction based on the present. There is only one source of time, the central source that is the present, just as there is a single source of chromatic qualities in their bipolarity, a single source for all an intensive and qualitative series. The being's present is as problematic in the process of resolution, since as such it is bipolar according to time, i.e. phasic insofar as it is problematic. The individual being is not substance, but the being called into question. The being across a problematic, divided, reunited, carried within this problematic, that posits itself through the being and makes the being become at the same time as it makes becoming. Becoming is not the becoming of the individuated being, but the becoming of the being's individuation. What happens comes about as a calling into question of the being, i.e. as an element of an open problematic, which is what the being's individuation resolves. The individual is contemporaneous with its becoming, since this becoming is that of its individuation. Time itself is essence, not as an unfolding of an origin or a tendency toward an end, but as the being's resolu resolutive constitution. Such a concept is possible only if we accept the notion of phases of being. This notion is different from the notions contained and utilized by dialectics. Dialectics indeed implies the existence of a significative becoming that has a capacity to constitute essence, but dialectical becoming changes the being, opposes it, renews it. On the contrary, phases are phases of the being. The being is not what passes through phases by modifying. It is the being that becomes the being of the phases, that proceeds from itself by phase shifting with respect to its center of reality. The dimensionality of phases is the being's becoming. The being is according to the phases that are its phases, phases relative to the center that it is. 
the being is not displaced from the center by phase shifting in two directions with respect to itself. The time of becoming is the direction of the bipolarity according to which the, the being phase shifts. The being individuates as it becomes. To individuate and to become is a single mode of existing. The phases of being are given together. They are part of one manner of being. Becoming is a manner of being. It is the being's becoming, not a becoming to which the being is submitted by some violence done to its essence and with which the being can dispense, all while remaining what it is. In the conception of dialectics, being requires being sufficiently integrated into the being that becomes. It has remained the time of being, which is timeless in essence, but thrown into the thesis. Dialectic modifies being. It is be the modifications of being are not the consequences of becoming, but aspects of the phases of being. The existence of phases of being should not be only on a background of the parallelism. Place of sense and succession are concepts that cannot account for becoming because they suppose being to a single. Uh, so yeah, th this um, this passage is uh, uh, maybe I'll start with this um, his criticisms of Leibniz and Spinoza with respect to um, the doctrine of the individual. Uh, and neither one for him really captures um, a, a true concept of the individual. Uh, but here he's he's criticizing their doctrines with respect to the concept of becoming. Uh, and he says that neither one is really capable of capturing that concept either. So for Leibniz, um, there's this notion uh, of the monad as uh, containing within its concept uh, everything that happens to it. So um, like he says, the, the monad has no windows through which um, qualities would would sort of come in and out. Uh, so uh, he he um, uh, sort of explains this doctrine by saying that Julius Caesar, the concept of Julius Caesar, um, uh, contains within it the fact that he would cross the Rubicon and be be murdered by Brutus and so on. Every um, event of his life was already contained within the concept, uh, the, the complete concept of Julius Caesar. It's just that we as finite beings can only operate with uh, finite concepts. So we, we, um, we can't um, uh, sort of draw all the conclusions that are contained in the concepts. Um, and, uh, and so for that reason, uh, everything, there, there's ultimately no such thing as, uh, becoming for Leibniz. Uh, it's only from a finite perspective that there appears to be becoming uh, because we as finite beings can only grasp uh, a certain portion of reality at a time. Um, whereas for for God, there's, um, there's really no such thing as becoming uh, because every uh, happening, every event from our perspective is really just contained in the concepts of, uh, of all those entities that are involved. Uh, and then for Spinoza, likewise, um, because there's no real doctrine uh, of the individual, the, or the individual for Spinoza is again only um, only from a finite perspective, uh, and um, uh, the reality as a whole, which Spinoza calls God, um, is uh, is something eternal, um, and it's only. Um, it's only from our finite perspective that we can see things as uh, undergoing becoming. Whereas uh, seen from the perspective of God, there, there really is no becoming. 
Uh, and so Simon Dong argues that both of these conceptions are um, unsatisfying they, because, because they don't give us an account of becoming. Um, and um, we, we instead have to start from, uh, from individuation uh, rather than sort of uh, starting from the already constituted individual and then trying to figure out how becoming would happen to it. We have to start from individuation as a becoming uh, and and sort of hold on to that middle ground, um, which is his his sort of standard move um, to to always want to hold on to the middle ground uh, rather than trying to sort of recompose it based on the two extremes of the of the um, spectrum. Uh, and then we get this bit about dialectics, and we'll see. He he continues talking about this. Um, I think in the next bit. Um, but yeah, so dialectics. Uh, is a we've seen before his criticism of uh of the notion of dialectics um or his uh his uh alternate position which is that um he he suggests that we shouldn't think about um we shouldn't think about um this process of becoming as having a, a negative term there's nothing uh there's no uh, negation involved. Uh, there's disparation, but not negation. Um, but we've also seen in the part on psychical individuation, we saw him actually adopt the term dialectics for his own theory, um, which was surprising. Uh, but then now he comes back to this criticism of dialectics. Um, so I, I think to, to make sense of this, we have to at least suppose that he is using the term dialectics in, in two different senses and, and that he, um, when he's criticizing dialectics here, he's thinking specifically of Hegelian dialectics. Uh, but then in the other passage, he's um, talking about uh, a different kind of dialectics, uh, which would not include negation uh, in the way that Hegelian dialectics does. Uh, I could understand um, a few dialectic definitions if there's like, um, drawings for them because like I'm kind of a visual person so if there's no uh, is uh, like uh, drawing uh, I I find it difficult to understand the concept of dialectics yeah dialectics is a, a tricky concept um, because pretty much everyone who uses it uses it in a, a different meaning um, but uh, I think I think it helps to sort of go back to the the root of the of the word um, when when Plato talks about dialectics. Uh, it has to do with these dialogues. Um, so Plato, of course, uh, his writings that survive are all in the form of dialogues, um, except for some letters. Uh, um, but um, in these dialogues, you have. Socrates normally, uh, and then some other person who are um, talking about, you know, what is justice or what is knowledge or some other um, uh, term. They want to figure out what it means, uh, and you have these um, these people who who um, you know tell Socrates, of course I know what justice means, and then they give some definition of justice, and then Socrates questions. Um, he he keeps asking questions about you know, what, what does this imply? 
um, and um, the the person ends up uh, affirming the opposite of what they started out uh, as as affirming. So they say that justice is um, um, they say justice is X, and then uh, at the end of the discussion or or after uh, a series of questions from Socrates, they end up saying justice is Y, and then uh, X and Y are incompatible um, definitions of, of what justice is. Uh, and so this process by which um, a concept turns into its opposite or, um, or uh, through which um, a certain philosophical position uh, contains contradictions within itself uh, is, is normally what, um, what we uh, have in mind when we talk about dialectics. Um, but so here, I think he's specifically thinking of Hegel's uh, system in which, um, uh, in particular, I think he's thinking of the, the beginning of the logic um, in which you have pure being, which, um, because it's a completely empty concept, is immediately equivalent to nothingness. Uh, so being, uh, you start off with the idea of being and you immediately end up with the idea of nothingness uh, and, and you have this movement from being to nothingness and, and from nothingness to being because these are two just equivalent concepts. Uh, and um, it's precisely this movement of one from to the other that uh, um, constitutes the, the next concept in the series, which is becoming. Um, and, and so Simon Dong here, I think, is suggesting that um, this this notion of of the pure being as the starting point um, is, is already presupposing uh, uh, a sort of individuated being. Um, so we already start from something like an individual, uh, and then it's only because this conception fails that we end up with being as um, uh, equivalent to nothingness. Um, and so I think for Simon Don, uh, we can only ever be sort of uh, at the second stage of the process. Um, we only ever, um, in, in thought, we can only ever come after something that is already pre-individual. Um, and, and so because of that, we we can't start from this pure being uh, and uh, begin from from pure being uh, in the way that Hegel wants. Um, oh yeah, and a couple questions here in the chat. Uh, so from Ion talking about um, uh, let's see, so is the being that brings about becoming an individual or an individuation? Um, so I think here the picture that we should have in mind is. Um, being before uh, individuation is this um, something that is uh, greater than unity. So it's it's not something that is uh, sort of similar to an individual. It's this uh, this pre-individuated being that contains um, plurality within it. Um, and then we have this split of uh, of this pre-individual being into phases. Uh, and then it's precisely the splitting of being into phases that is becoming. Uh, so it's um, 
it's the becoming of being uh, rather than um, becoming as something that sort of happens to being uh, or that is imposed upon being from without. <clears throat> um, so yeah, it, it's it's the individuation process itself that is becoming. Uh, and then we have a, another comment from Angus uh, or a question. Um, so if knowledge is knowledge of individuation, then don't we only know the pre-individual being in relation to a given individuation? So that in knowledge, individuation comes before the pre-individual, which is constituted by it, just as the past is constituted by the present in the temporalization point above. Um, yeah, I think I think we um, we have to think the pre-individual as um, uh, sort of retroactively. We we can only ever um, sort of suppose that the pre-individual exists prior to any given individuation. Uh, but he makes the, the remark um, in a, a passage that we just read a little while ago um, that the pre-individual is, um, uh, is, is not sort of limited to any given individual being. So when, like in the subject-object relationship, you... Um, 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 in the subject-object relationship, there's um, knowledge of the the object um, in the form. Uh, sorry, the, the the object is something individuated, uh, and and then uh, the subject is another individuated entity that is related to it uh, externally. Um, and so, in knowledge of uh, in a process of individuation, we can only ever come after the pre-individual being that, is, that has already un undergone individuation. Um, and so we, uh, but at the same time, we're not sort of stuck within um, the individual because uh, the pre-individual is, um, is not sort of um, limited to the individual. It's, uh, there's, there's one pre-individual reality out of which um, multiple individuals will be individuated. And in particular, in the relation of knowledge, um, we, we talk about the individuation of the whole system, uh, including subject and object. Uh, and um, so it's because the individual is always relative to uh, a surrounding milieu that uh, the, the individual uh, or the subject, I should say, is capable of having knowledge of something outside of themselves. And uh, so the knowledge of the pre-individual or the sort of quasi-knowledge that we have of the pre-individual um, is not limited in that sense. Um, okay, so let's go on to the next bit. Uh, let's see, where did we end? Um, I think we finished. Yeah, so we're at 365, there is a danger. Um, if someone else would like to read from there. Is your mic not working properly? I'm oh, sorry. Uh, did you hear any of that? I'll just start yeah. over. There yeah. is a danger in the use of the physical paradigm to characterize life, that of reduction. But this danger can be avoided. Indeed, this paradigm can be used by taking the physical domain as a supportive structures and functions that depend on non-living characteristics that expand them in their initial phase and amplify them but are not reduced to them. There is a domain of knowledge of the physical and a domain of knowledge of the living, but there is not the same, in the same sense, a real domain of the physical and a real domain of the living separated 
by a certain equally real boundary. The physical and the vital are distinct according to structures and functions without being separate according to the substantial real. There is a certain mode of existence of the physical that should, should not be confused with the physical after the emergence of the vital. After the emergence of the vital, the physical is an impoverished, uncharged real, a residue of the complete process from which life has emerged by separating. But there is also a physical that can be called the natural, in that it is both pre-vital and pre-physical. Life and non-living matter, in a certain sense, can be treated as two speeds of the evolution of the real. Perhaps even here, we shouldn't attempt to recompose totality based on the extreme terms by considering these extreme terms as the substantial basis capable of explaining in their combination the entire relational reality that they omit between them. This intermediate reality, which can be considered after the fact as a mixture engendered by relation, is perhaps that which carries the extreme terms, engenders them, and pushes them outside itself as the extreme boundaries of its existence. The relational appearance perhaps presupposes a pre-relational being. The opposition of the inert and the living would be the product of the application of the dualizing schema of hylomorphic origin with its characteristic zone of central obscurity, which leads one to believe in the existence of a relation where there is in fact the being's consistent center. Seen through the hylomorphic schema, life and inert matter are perhaps the result of two speeds of the individuation of the same pre-vital and pre-physical reality. The study of the individuation through which this differentiation occurs, therefore, cannot be merely a paradigmatism. Logically, it is a source of paradigms, but it can be a source of paradigms only if it is fundamentally, at least in a hypothetical sense, a grasping of real becoming based upon which the domains of application of the schemata that it unleashes constitute themselves. Here, the paradigm is not an analogical paradigm like Plato's, but a conceptual intuitive, conceptual and intuitive line that accompanies an absolute genesis of domains with their structure and the operations that characterize them. It is a discovery of the intellectual axiomatic contemporaneous with the study of being, not an initiation to the domain of the knowable, of the knowable difficulty based on a better known domain that is easier to explore, which would suppose an analogical relation between the two domains. In this sense, it must not be said that the living being appears after physical reality and above all and above it by integrating it. On the contrary, the appearance of the living being would have the effect of deferring and delaying physical reality by expanding the initial phase of its constitution. It would necessitate more precise and more complex condi conditions of initial tension and metastability capable of neotenizing physical individuation. Even before the genesis of the individual being in itself, a study of becoming and of the exchanges it involves would allow for the grasping of this possible genesis of the individual being, whether physical or living, vegetal or animal, on a ground of the being's transformations. Since it is a question of the being before any individuation or of the being split after individuation, this method would always consist in attempting to apprehend the being at its center 
to understand on the basis of the center the extreme aspects and the dimension according to which these opposed aspects constitute themselves. The being would thus be grasped as a tensed unity or as a structure, structured and functional system, but never as an ensemble of terms in relation. Becoming in the appearances of relations it involves would consequently be known as dimensions of being and not as a framework within which something happens to being according to a certain order. Becoming is phase shifting with respect to itself, passing from the phaseless state of being the state of being according to the phases that are its phases. Right. Um, yeah, there was one little translation point here that it maybe is worth um, bringing up. So at the top of 366, uh, towards the end of that first paragraph on the page, uh, it says in the translation here, the domain of the knowable difficultly based on a better known domain. Um, I think that's a, that's a mistranslation. I think it should be something like, um, sorry, let me find that in the French. Um, sorry, I had it a minute ago. Uh, no, I can't find it, but um, it should be something like the domain of what is only difficultly knowable or what is only knowable with difficulty based on a better known domain that is easier to explore, et cetera. Um, knowable with difficulty is, is better than... Uh, um, there's also... Um, yeah, so we have here, again, this notion of a paradigm, um, which he's introduced uh, earlier in this conclusion. Um, so we have um, a paradigm as um, um, this um, sort of model that we draw from one domain and apply to another, um, but it, it can't be just sort of arbitrary, right? So we can't um, we can't just take something from physical individuation and uh, apply it to vital individuation in, in any way we want. Um, there's a, a certain creativity of thought involved in uh, this paradigmatization. Uh, so we have to um, we have to sort of um, bring about uh, this analogy between the the two different domains of thought in order to um, uh, apply a paradigm to another one. Um, so it's um, here he, he argues that, uh, or the term that he uses here is that it's this conceptual and intuitive line that accompanies an absolute genesis of domains. Um, so, it, and again, he also calls this a discovery of the intellectual axiomatic contem contemporaneous with the study of being. Um, and, and so the idea is that um, Rather than um, rather than treating uh, analogy between these two domains as uh, um, this idea of taking something that is better known and applying it to something less known, um, we instead have to bring about the genesis of both domains at the same time and uh, have this uh, um, genetic process appear within thought. Uh, so we um, we bring about the genesis of physical um, individuation within our thought, and then we also bring about this genesis of vital individuation within thought, and uh, we apply one to the other in this creative act. Uh, um, and, and so that's how we um, 
apply these paradigms to um, other cases rather than um, sort of abstracting from one situation and then applying it to another one. I have a question. Uh, yeah, um, sure. So the last uh, statement or the conclusion of the last reading, um, yeah, it leads me to a little bit of a provocation around um, the problem with this idea of state. So he says that uh, becoming is being face shifting with respect to itself, passing from the phaseless state of being, um, and then to the state of being, according to the phases that are its phases. So I'm hoping to unpack that a little bit and and kind of work through the problem of the use of the word state, right? Because at, at that point, there is a kind of um, juncture consolidation as opposed to a region that, like a Kleinemann, that the process moves through. Um, yeah, so this, this idea of a, a state of being, he, uh, he doesn't exactly define this term, but um, I think we can understand it just to mean um, either the property of uh, uh, consisting in phases or of being phaseless. Um, so um, in, any, in any process of individuation, there's always a starting state in which there is no phases, um, in which we just have this, this pre-individual reality. Um, and then uh, from that state of pre-individual reality, it, uh, it undergoes this phase splitting, this dephasing operation uh, in which it separates out into individual and associated milieu. Uh, and then um, we can also have uh, the subsequent individuation um, processes in the formation of a collective of some kind. Um, uh, through further uh, individuation processes. So there's also the, the trans individual calls ahead to, um, to this collective. Um, so the state of being is just one of these moments of this uh, process of individuation or this process of becoming. Uh, and we also have a comment here from Angus about um, uh, this idea of being as deferring and delaying physical reality uh, and um, the um, the connection that Stiegler draws with uh, Derrida um, and this idea of life as différence um, with an A. Um, yeah, I think that um, I mean my my knowledge of Derrida is pretty um, rusty at this point, but um, yeah, that idea of uh, deferring uh, you can definitely see why he wanted to make that connection. Um, it, it uh, uh, is something that, that would definitely be... Okay, so let's go on from uh, such a conception at the bottom of 366, uh, if someone else would like to read. I can go again. Um, such a conception of the being supposes that the principle of the excluded middle is not used, or that, or that at the very least it is relativized. 
Indeed, the being would first present itself as that which exists in the state of tensed unity, bearing an incompatibility that pushes it toward a structuration and a functionalization that constitutes becoming, with becoming having the capacity to be conceived as the dimension according to which this resolution of the being's first state is possible through a phase shift. The primary mover thus would not be the simple and singular being, but the being insofar as it is anterior to any appearance of phases, harboring them energetically, yet not as forms or structures that can come forth. In the same way as the position of the problem in a certain sense bears the possible solution as a tension toward a signification that incorporates the data of the problem, albeit without the prior formation of the effective lines of the solution, which would only appear through the real becoming of a resolutive, a resi resolutive invention, and which are this becoming. Thus, the capacity of resolutive becoming is contained in the being before any becoming through the incompatibility that it will be able to make compatible. But not the line of this becoming's existence, which is not already given and cannot be preformed since the problematic is without phases. The resolutive discovery in its becoming makes structures and functions appear on the one hand and matter deprived of its tension tensions on the other, i.e. individual and milieu, information and matter. The resolution makes two complementary aspects appear, the extreme terms on the one hand and the reality that establishes mediation on the other. Individual and milieu are two phases of being, the extreme terms of a splitting that intervenes as a resolutive invention, which presupposes a preliminary tension and incompatibility that they transform into an asymmetrical structuration. It can be said that the being phase shifts into individual, individual and milieu, allowing for a great many modalities depending on whether this phase shift is total or partial, whether it is capable or incapable of degrees, and whether it admits a continuous progress or proceeds by leaps. Such a theory doesn't merely seek to explain the genesis of individuated beings and to propose a vision of individuation. It attempts to make of individuation the foundation of an amplifying becoming, and therefore places individuation between an initial state of the unresolved being and the entrance into the resolutive path of becoming. Individuation is not the result of becoming or something produced in becoming, but becoming in itself insofar as becoming is the being's becoming. Individuation cannot be fully known if it is related to its result, i.e. the constituted individual, and if one attempts to give individuation a definition merely seeking to account for the characteristics of the individual in itself, the individual does not make it possible to ascend back to individuation, since the individual is merely one of the aspects of individuation. There is a correlate of the individual that is constituted at the same time as it by individuation, the milieu, which is the being deprived of what the individual has become. Only the milieu-individual couple could allow for the ascent back toward individuation. Individuation is what produces the phase shift of the being into individual and milieu based on a previous being that is capable of becoming individual and milieu. Individual and milieu should be taken only as the extreme conceptualizable but not substantializable terms of the being within which individuation takes place. The center of individuation is not the constituted individual. The individual is lateral relative to individuation. Happy to keep going if you want. Uh, we can stop here. That's fine. Um...
Yeah, so um, scroll back a little bit. Um, right, so he, he introduces this idea here that um, pre-individual being uh, is prior to the principle of excluded middle. Um, and so for anyone who, who doesn't know what the principle of excluded middle is, um, this is just the principle that for any proposition P, uh, either P or not P holds, or for any property, uh, Q call it, um, uh, and in any individual um, X, either QX or not QX holds. Um, so um, this, this principle uh, is one that Aristotle um, sets out as being one of the basic principles of, of logic. Um, so for any proposition, it's either true or false, or um, the proposition is true or its negation is true. Um, and uh, this is a, a principle that um, is a characteristic of classical logic. Uh, and there exists um, a, a well-established um, alternate logic called intuitionistic logic in which there is no uh, principle of excluded middle. So um, um, what that means essentially is that um, you can't do arguments through um, uh, arguments by contradiction. Uh, so in classical logic, and uh, this is like a, a sort of traditional method of proof within mathematics, you can say that either A or B holds, um, and then you prove that, that not B, and then you can conclude that A. Um, and you can do this for, uh, in classical logic, you can do this for any, uh, any proposition. You can say either, either this proposition is true or it's false. Uh, if, it, if we assume that it's false, we end up with a contradiction. So therefore, it must be true. Uh, but in intuitionistic uh, approaches to mathematics, you actually can't do this argument. All you can conclude is that, um, is that, uh, the negation of the proposition leads to an absurdity, but you can't conclude from that that the proposition is true. Uh, and so Simon Don's uh, position here is closer to this intuitionistic uh, approach to mathematics um, and to reasoning in general. Um, so you, uh, um, we can't presuppose this principle of excluded middle. We have to uh, think of uh, this pre-individual being as prior to the excluded middle. Um, and uh, so it would be, um, if we wanted to do a, a, a logic of um, a logic of the pre-individual, it would have to be something like an intuitionistic lo logic. Uh, and then we have a comment here from Angus about um, this idea that the, the pre-individual contains the phases like a problem contains possible solutions is related to the idea of contingency in Simondon. There's a kind of limited contingency in that the position of the problem doesn't allow for just any solution, but there is contingency in the sense that the form of solution is not ac actually given in the problem. Uh, yeah, I think that that sounds right. So um, there there is a sort of um, preformation of the solution in the problem. So when you set out a certain problem, there's a only a certain type of solution that, that is actually a, a solution of that problem. Um, so the, the solution is, is in, uh, in a sense given with the problem, but uh, it's not actually given. It's not 
uh, something that is actually present. So it's not just um, like whatever type of problem you have in mind. It's not just by sort of analyzing the the conditions of the problem that you can find a solution. Um, um, only in in the case of uh, sort of trivial problems is it true that you can just um, find the solution by analyzing the the problem. Instead, in in the case of a, a non-trivial uh, problem, you have to actually have the uh, creativity to come up with a solution. Um, but then once you have that solution, you can sort of retroactively say, yes, of course, that solution um, is the correct solution because it, it's it's already sort of prefigured in the problem itself. Um, and, and so I think this is a, sort of a, a model for how we can think of uh, contingency in, in Simondon um, in the sense that um, um, there's always this element of creativity uh, that is at work, uh, whether it's in physical individuation or vital individuation, uh, and especially when we talk about psychical and collective individuation. Um, but this creativity um, means something that can't be predicted, or um, it's not just uh, it's not just working out the consequences of what is already posited in the problem. Um, so the there's always this aspect of creativity involved in any real process of individuation. Yeah, I think that's right. So if you had something like a pure contingency, um, you would have um, there. That would mean that um, there would be no relationship between the problem and the solution. Um, so uh, the problem would set up some sort of conditions, and then anything could build that, those conditions or, or anything could serve as a solution to the problem. Um, and I don't know, I guess that would be some sort of uh, uh, like generic postmodernist doctrine that like anything goes or something like that. Um, I don't know if anyone ever actually held that position. Um, but uh, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely not the position that, that Simon Don is arguing for. So uh, it's only because there is a, a, not a complete contingency and there's a, this partial contingency um, that we can have a relationship between um, the, the problem and its solution. Um, and uh, it's only because of that that there is something like creativity is possible. Um, so it, it might seem sort of paradoxical that um, we have to uh, have a limited contingency in order for creativity to be possible. Uh, so it's only because there is that limitation to to contingency that um, that we can have creativity in uh, various individuation processes. Um, I think we have time for maybe one more reading. Uh, uh, yeah, we we still have quite a quite a bit left um, in the in the conclusion. I'm not sure we'll get through it in. Uh, next week's discussion, but um, yeah, let's read one more passage and then call it a day. Um, so where are we exactly? I think we're at the top of 368, is that right? Starting with the being taken in its center. Right. Okay, um, I can read a bit from there. The being taken in its center on the level of individuation must be grasped as splitting into individual and milieu, i.e. undergoing resolution. Eventually, the individuated being can once again be the, the theater of an individuation, 
since individuation does not exhaust from the start the potential resources of the being in an initial operation of individuation. The first pre-individual state of the being can continue to exist in association with the result of an initial individuation. In fact, it can be supposed that individuation takes place in a quantum manner through abrupt leaps, each plateau of individuation being capable of once again relating itself to the following as a pre-individual state of being. A rapport of the successive states of individuation occurs in this way. In particular, this is how the relation between individuated beings can be explained. This relation only seemingly is only seemingly between beings. It is the collective individuation of a charge of pre-individual reality contained in beings that have received an initial status of individuation. What is defined as an inter-individual rapport is in reality the coherence of a systematics of individuation that incorporates the already constituted individuals into a vaster unity. Relation is founded by individuation due to a rapport between successive states of individuation that remain linked by the being's energetic and systematic unity. A substantialistic monism like that of Spinoza comes against a great difficulty when it is a question of accounting for the individual being. This difficulty does not arise so much from the unity of substance as from its eternity. This difficulty, moreover, is shared by all substantialistic doctrines, even when they fragment substance to the point of identifying substance and individual, thereby composing everything with individuals, as Leibniz does in his acceptance of an infinity of substances. This difficulty is simply more apparent in Spinoza, since Spinoza to the end accepts the consequences of substantialism and refuses to place the genesis of substance as the constitution of complete individual notions, substantial essences, in the be beginning of becoming. The substantial being can become with difficulty because the substantial being is resolved in advance. It is always already monophasic being since it, con it consists in itself. The fact of being in itself and by itself is also the fact of being coherent with itself, i.e. incapable of being opposed to itself. Substance is one because it is stable. It is actual. It is not charged with potentials. Despite Spinoza's, <clears throat> despite Spinoza's terminology, what substance lacks is being nature, or it also lacks the capacity not to be simultaneously and indissolubly, indissolubly natured and denaturing. According to the doctrine we are presenting, being is never one. When it is monophasic, pre-individual, it is more than one. It is one because it is non-decomposed, but it has enough in it to be more than what it is in its actual structure. The principle of the excluded middle would only apply for a residual being incapable of becoming. The being is not several in the sense of realized plurality. It is richer than its self-coherence. The one being is a being that is limited to itself, a coherent being. However, we would like to say that the original state of the being is a state that surpasses self-coherence, that exceeds its own limits. The original being is not stable, it is metastable. It is not one, it is capable of expansion starting from itself. The being does not subsist relative to itself. It is constrained, tensed, superposed on itself, and not one. The being is not reduced to what it is. It is accumulated in itself, potentialized. It exists as being and also as energy. The being is both structure and energy. Structure itself is not merely structure since several orders of dimension are superposed. Each structure corresponds to a certain energetic state that can appear in future transformations and belongs to the being's metastability. It seems that all theories of substance, movement and rest, becoming an eternity, essence and accident, rely on a conception of exchanges and modifications that recognize only alteration and stable equilibrium, not metastability. The being, stable, possessing a structure, is conceived as simple. 
but staple equilibrium is perhaps nothing but a borderline case. The general case of states is perhaps that of metastable states. The equilibrium of a realized structure is only stable within certain limits and in a single order of magnitude without any interaction with other orders of magnitude. It conceals potentials that, that when unleashed can produce an abrupt alteration that lead to a new equally metastable structuration. Thus being and becoming are no longer opposed notions if it is considered that states are metastable manners of being, plateaus of stability leaping from structure to structure. Becoming is no longer the continuity of an alteration, but the linking of metastable states through the unleashing of potential energy whose play and existence are part of the regime of causality that constitutes the, these states. The energy contained in the metastable system is the same as that which is actualized as the passage from one state to another. This structure energy ensemble is what can be called being. In this sense, it cannot be said that being is one. It is simultaneous, paired on its own in a system that surpasses unity, which is more than one. Unity, particularly that of the individual, can appear within being through a, a separate simplification that produces the individual in a correlative milieu, which is without unity but homogeneous. Uh, so this bit, I think, um, I think is relatively straightforward. Um, it's, it's just sort of restating some of the ideas that we've seen already in the introduction and earlier in this conclusion. Um, so it's, um, uh, right, so there's this um, idea of how uh, a rapport, so this external relation, a relation conceived as something external to the related terms uh, is always the result of, um, of a process of individuation in which the related terms appear um, or that the, the two related terms undergo. So there's always a, a pre-individual reality underlying the related terms that, uh, that undergoes individuation into these two related terms. And only because of that um, uh, underlying pre-individual reality uh, only because of that is there something like a relation, uh, even if it appears in the form of this rapport, this purely external relation. Uh, and then we also have here more discussion of um, metastability in contrast with stability. Uh, and so again, this metastability is just um, this provisionally stable state that contains tensions and potentials for further transformation within itself. And uh, so Simondon is arguing here that metastability is the, the more fundamental concept, uh, the prior concept, and then stability is a special case that um, sort of, um, that, that can sometimes happen, but is not the, the fundamental um, condition of entity. Right, okay, so let's, um, let's end here for today. Um, um, and then I'm not sure we'll get through the whole um, conclusion, the, the whole rest of the conclusion uh, next time, but we can see how far we get. Um, and then uh, after we finish the conclusion, that, that's the end of volume one. Uh, and then we can take a look at my translation that I posted uh, yesterday um, of the Cavallas and Lotman piece. Cool. Okay. So thank you, everyone, and uh, see you all next week.